If you brought a Bible, well, first you can turn down your hearing aids. <laughs> and then you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be in a few different passages tonight, but that's the first, Matthew 5. I once had the opportunity to meet a man named Haddon Robinson. That name may mean something to some of you. This is the man who both figuratively and literally wrote the book on biblical preaching. And after he spoke, I made my way down to the front of the sanctuary. I stood in a long line of other people who had virtually the exact same question. Here we have the master teacher of master preachers. And so when it was finally my turn in the queue, I asked him, what makes a great preacher great? What is it that makes a great preacher distinct? And without missing a beat, this is how he replied, stern-faced. He looked back at me and said, you know, son, the greatest preachers of all time, all of them, the greatest of all time, Augustine and Calvin and Luther and Whitfield and Edwards and Spurgeon and all the rest have one thing in common. And then he smiled and he said, they were all ugly. And then he put his arm around me and he looked me square in the eyes and he said, so things are looking up. <laughs> the, uh, the last few days have presented a rare privilege, which is this. These men who have proved themselves e exceptions to uh, Robinson's rule, right? They have deftly and passionately preached God's word. I want to take a moment and say thank you to Justin Nail and the church family here at Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church. Thank you for allowing us to worship with you over the last few nights. It has been an extraordinarily meaningful and uh, spiritually impactful couple of days. Uh, I want to say thank you to the men who have worked hard over the last few days, prepared an extra sermon after the weekend to share with us. I know I have benefited from that. And I also want to say thank you to all of you who have done an extraordinary thing in setting aside a little extra television time or couch time or work time in order to study and to be transformed by God's word. Thank you. Let's pray. Father of all mercy, who abounds in patience, and who is the very epitome of long-suffering. My prayer for myself and for all the rest of us in this room tonight is that we would grasp more than simply the meaning of your word. We long to be transformed by it. Let our hearts be renewed that we may love as you love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We all have enemies. You have enemies. I have enemies. This afternoon, I went to the gym. I worked as hard as my stocky frame will allow me to do. I walked downstairs, and there were two girls in little uniforms selling mass quantities of cookies. <laughs> we all have enemies. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, of course, you have more serious enemies. Some are opposed to your message, and some are opposed to your lifestyle. Some are opposed to your advocacies, and some are opposed to your values. Uh, 
You have enemies who dislike you and enemies who find your beliefs deplorable and enemies even in some parts of the world who find your very life intolerable. If you bear the standard of Jesus Christ, you have enemies. And there are at this very moment those who would consider it the greatest triumph of their lives to end yours. And you, Christian, have been commanded to love them. You must love your enemies. We will uh, see, I think, three things tonight. We'll see the command to love our enemies. First, the command will be given in Matthew chapter 5. If you're looking for an outline, that'll be our, our first point tonight. The command given in Matthew chapter 5. We'll see the command depicted in Jonah chapter 4. We'll see the command depicted in Jonah chapter 4. And finally, we'll see the command epitomized in Romans chapter 5. We'll see that command epitomized in Romans chapter 5. We start in Matthew where the command is given. Starting in verse 43, we find this from Jesus as he's preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, starting in verse 43 of Matthew 5, You have heard it, it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, there are uh, innumerable observations and insights that could be made from this passage. I think for uh, our purposes tonight, two will suffice. The first is this. Jesus' command is exceptionally clear. You cannot profess obedience and simultaneously hate your enemies. You cannot profess obedience and simultaneously hate your enemies. Observe how Jesus takes a message that is embedded within the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, and draws it out to its extreme conclusion. You may want to write here in the margins if uh, you take notes in your Bible, if you're one of those people, right? Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5, which say this. You don't need to turn there. I'll read them to you. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. This is your enemy's ox or donkey. Verse 5, if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it, and you shall rescue it with him. So Jesus here takes what is inherent to the Mosaic law and pushes it nine steps forward. He commands us not only to live peaceably with our enemies, but to love them. Back in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 46 and 47, Jesus uses two negative illustrations to drive the point home. Even tax collectors, he says, who were to the original audience well known to be morally reprobate, are in agreement that we should love those who love us, even Gentiles, those of darkened vision, who did not worship the one true God whose temple is in Jerusalem, even they love those who love them. Jesus says that even the spiritually blind agree to love the loving. But he compels us to something greater. 
He says we must go further. He says that we must love those who hate us. We must love those who seek us woe. So Jesus' command is clear. You cannot profess obedience and simultaneously hate your enemies. A second observation from this passage, Jesus' command, for most of us, we can recognize quite quickly, is counterintuitive. Any reasonable person would find the call to love one's enemies absurd. The command is nothing if not counterintuitive. Any reasonable person would find the call to love one's enemies baffling. But we are not a reasonable people, at least not according to the standards of the world in which we live. We are not a reasonable people, we are a redeemed people. A people being transformed to embody the affections of the one who saved us. And we see this very clearly demonstrated in Jonah chapters 3 and 4. So please turn back in your Bibles to Jonah chapters 3 and 4. Now, we all know the story of Jonah, right? Anyone who's got a children's Bible knows the story of Jonah. Jonah is told to go to the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, who were enemies of the Israelites. Instead, Jonah goes in the opposite direction, boards a boat, and flees his prophetic responsibilities, right? You're familiar with this narrative. And then, sea-tossed, Jonah confesses to his pagan crew his disobedience to the God of Israel and then compels his shipmates to throw him overboard where he is swallowed by a great fish, right? And then, repenting, Fully and compellingly, we are led to believe in the belly of the fish, Jonah is then vomited up three days later, reborn the energetic and faithful servant of the Lord, right? And that is where the story ends, right? Wrong. Wrong. And if this is where the story Bible that you read to your children every night ends the story of Jonah, let me adjure you. Throw it away. Buy a new one. It's worth the 10 bucks. It's wrong, of course. Jonah is, if we take the time to read Jonah chapters 3 and 4, unquestionably he is one of the most miserable figures in the entirety of the Old Testament canon. Of course, he is commissioned to go to the city of Nineveh. We see that in the first few chapters, or excuse me, the first few verses of chapter 1. We see it repeated again in the first few verses of chapter 3. God has given Jonah a message to take to the city of Nineveh. And what can be reasonably inferred from these verses is that the Ninevites were exceedingly wicked. There's no argument there. But that God was going to warn them of the consequences of their wickedness and grant them an opportunity for repentance. We can infer the potential for mercy in these verses. But here's the first observation we need to make about this passage. Jonah's reaction toward the Assyrian people is reasonable, but it is not loving. Jonah's reaction toward the Assyrian people is reasonable, but it is not loving. Jonah does indeed eventually, after having been regurgitated by a large fish, make his way to Nineveh. And he does indeed prophesy against the wickedness of the Assyrian people, but not from a heart which longs for their repentance. Not out of a love that seeks reconciliation. Not out of the hope that one day they having repented, they might altogether worship the one true God of Israel. Jonah prophesied out of fear and out of rage and out of revenge and out of hate. 
And we see how this plays out in Jonah chapter 3. Let's start in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. This is post-large fish vomiting, right? I'm going to make several references tonight. I hope if you're a boy between the ages of, say, 9 and 14, I'm going to give you juicy stuff to talk about with your Sunday school teacher, all right? We've already covered fish vomit. We'll hit a few others along the way, all right? Verse 2, this is what the Lord says. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, this is key. This is an important observation here. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days journey in breath. Stop. Observation. We can reasonably conclude from those verses that if Jonah was to do an enthusiastic job of communicating the message of God's wrath and the potential for God's mercy to the Ninevites, that it should take him approximately three days in order to achieve that goal. Keep that in the back of your minds. You'll see the relevance here in just a moment. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city going a single day's journey, and he called out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh actually believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Then a word reached a king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he removed his robe, and he covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout the city of Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man or beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Jonah indeed makes his way to Nineveh and preaches to them the calamity which will follow if they do not repent. But there's no mercy in Jonah's message. Note how the author of this book tells us that Nineveh is a three days journey in breath. One thing I think that we can conclude from this verse and from the verses that follow is that Jonah, preaching for only one day, did not fully do his job. Why? Jonah hates the Ninevites. And the Ninevites, historians will tell us, were worthy of his angst. The Assyrian people were enemies of Israel, and there's a long and complex narrative that runs throughout dozens of chapters in the Old Testament that uh, describes Israel's relationship with Assyria. To give you a little taste here, all right, and this is where our 9 to 14-year-old boys will find this interesting. Historians tell us that uh, the uh, Assyrians were so brutal, their armies had a particularly uh, gruesome uh, way, their favorite way to uh, take care of the uh, slaves that they brought back to their capital city, to Nineveh. They impaled them, and while still alive, covered them in tar and set them on fire. And this is what lit the way into the western gate into the city of Nineveh. When the Lord commands Jonah then to make his way to these implacable thugs, we can understand his hesitation. I get it, right? Hopefully you're sensing here the conflicted nature of Jonah internally. He does not want to go to Nineveh. I would not want to go to Nineveh. 
I would not want anyone I loved to go to Nineveh. I don't even go to the Walmart in Rocky Mount after dark, <laughs> right? I would not want to go to Nineveh. I understand why Jonah doesn't want to go, and I understand the tenor of his message to the Ninevites. It's devoid of mercy. His focus is exclusively on their impending doom. And I can affirm that Jonah's reaction to the Ninevites is reasonable. But that doesn't make it righteous. Jonah's reaction to the Ninevites is sensible. But it's not loving. Jonah's reaction toward the Ninevites is rational. But it does not reflect fully the character of the God who sent him. Consider these verses that speak to the Lord's character in the Old Testament and see if you notice a difference between the message that Jonah brings and the message that is proclaimed throughout the entirety of the Old Testament canon. Psalm 103.8, I'm sure some of you are familiar with this. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Or you may take as another example, uh, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps his loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and forgives transgression and sin. Take another example. This is from Jonah's canonical neighbor, Nahum. Nahum was also given a message for the Ninevite people. And in the midst of the early part of the letter that we receive from Nahum, a letter that is full of the pending calamity of the Lord for those who will not repent, we find this little gem. Starting in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, this is what's recorded. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the same city to which Jonah was sent. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh Verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Verse 3, stop, full stop, period. However, in contrast, he now includes a full spectrum analysis of the God that he serves. The Lord is also slow to anger and great in power. Of this verse, Spurgeon makes the following commentary. He says, Jehovah is slow to anger. When mercy comes into the world, she drives winged steeds. The axles of her chariot wheels are red hot with speed. But when wrath goes forth, it toils on with tardy footsteps. God's rod of mercy is ever in his hands outstretched. His sword of justice is in its scabbard, held down by that pierced hand of love which bled for the sins of men. This is in great contrast to what we find from Jonah. The portrait of God that Jonah paints is colored only by despair and abject doom. There is not a single brush stroke of mercy. There is no hue of patience. There is no hint of loving kindness. And we haven't even made our way to chapter 4 yet. Let's do that now. Verse 1. Excuse me. Let's back up to chapter 3, verse 10 for context here. When God saw what they did, that is the Ninevites, they repented, right? They ceased the violence which was in their hands and they dedicated themselves to repentance. When God saw that, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Now, pause there 
and ask yourself, anticipating what you think should come at the very beginning of chapter 4. If you made your way across the street to your neighbor's house and you know they're not a follower of Jesus Christ and you have been praying for them for a long time and you've been interacting with them and you have been sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them and you have been loving them and finally one day you share the good news of Jesus Christ with them, you tell them there's no hope without Jesus Christ but that Jesus appears for all men who would respond in faith and they say to you, I believe, I repent. I know I have no hope outside of Jesus Christ. How would you respond? Some of you have been in that situation. Some of you have pursued sharing the gospel with someone for so long and then they finally received it, when it finally clicked, when the grace of God through the Spirit of God finally worked in their hearts. It was unadulterated joy. I would think I would find something similar of Jonah. Now, here's our cranky prophet, chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord God said, Do you really do well to be this angry? We're given an interesting clue here as to the reason why Jonah never initially made his way to Nineveh. It really wasn't grounded in his fear. He may have been fearful of the repercussions for his own physical well-being. But the reason why Jonah did not initially make his way to Nineveh, the reason why Jonah disobeyed the Lord God of Israel, the reason why Jonah got on the boat and put his own life at stake heading in the exact opposite direction was because Jonah hated the Ninevites and he knew, he knew that if he preached repentance to them, they might actually repent. And there was nothing else in the world more abhorrent to him than the possibility that these people whom he hated, his enemies, might one day serve in fellowship with him, his God. Verse 5. Jonah is going to be at the center of an incredible object lesson here. Jonah went out of the city and he sat at the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. It's an interesting observation the author here of the book of Jonah makes. Jonah knows that the people have repented. He knows that God has relented from the calamity that he would have brought upon them. But Jonah thinks ah, it's, it's at least possible. I'll wait. I'll give God another chance. He knows how I feel about this. I've made myself exceptionally clear. Maybe I'll just go find myself a nice little rocky ledge. God will change his mind again. And now I'm going to have a front row seat when balls of fire rain down from the sky and annihilate the Ninevites, right? Maybe God will unrelent and nuke them. And I want to have great seats for that, right? But it's hot. So the Lord, verse 6, appoints a plant. And uh, an interesting clue here, 
In Hebrew grammar, we find at the end of this term here for plant, there's a diminutive ending here. It's a little tiny plant. It's a scrubby plant, right? This little meagly twig makes Charlie Brown's Christmas tree look like a California redwood. It's nothing. It's insignificant, right? He made for himself a booth, and the Lord God appointed a little meager plant, and he made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was, in contrast to his exceeding anger before, exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a little worm, a little tiny worm, and it attacked the little tiny plant, and the little plant withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked because of it that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you really do well to be this angry about the plant? And he said, yes, I do. I do to be well to be this angry, angry enough even to die. Now, I have uh, two daughters. I have a seven-year-old and a two-year-old, right? And I have heard almost this exact same verbiage as they sit in the backseat of the car and uh, if the air conditioning is not up full enough, the drama starts pumping out of the back seat, right? Uh, oh, Daddy, it's so hot back here. I wish I was dead, right? Here's Jonah, who has all the emotional maturity of my seven-year-old. Does it do you well to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says yes, and in verse 10, And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, and you did not make it grow, which you came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Jonah, heartbroken, devastated, torn apart from his own self over the plant, has no affection whatsoever, internal to himself, for the thousands and thousands of people who live in the valley below. And the Lord asking a question here to conclude the book demands from us rhetorically this. The big idea of the book of Jonah is simple. We must mimic God's affection for all people. We must mimic God's heart for all people. And I know of nowhere in the entirety of the Old Testament that makes it clear that we are like Jonah, called to love all people, even our enemies. But here's the operative question for the evening, right? How? How are people like you and me to learn to love our enemies? Here's the answer in short. We can love our enemies because we were once God's enemies and he has loved us. We can love our enemies because we were once God's enemies and he has loved us. For the last time, uh, turn over to Romans chapter 5. 
starting in verse 6. I'll read the paragraph and make a few observations. If you have any additional questions afterward, ask Justin. Just know if you haven't preached through this paragraph, he'll be done 2017, 2018, right? Those of you who go to Mount Hermon know what I'm talking about. He's thorough in the very best way. Starting in verse 6 of Romans chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more now shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, verse 10, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom now we have received reconciliation. Do you see what Paul calls us? We were enemies. We were enemies. We relished our rebellion. Paul describes us here as weak, ungodly, unrighteous, gleefully steeped in our own sin, and enthusiastic enemies of the Most High God. When I consider who I was before Christ, and when I am able to honestly admit my own sinfulness and how eager an enemy I was, and then I go back and I read the passion narratives. I read those stories at the end of the Gospels which talk about all that Jesus sacrificed near the end of his earthly ministry, how he sweated drops of blood, how he wept over what it is that he was about to do when he was beaten, when he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. When I admit who I am and then I read those passages, I find that I most easily relate not to Peter or to Mary Magdalene or to John. I find I personally relate, I think most easily, to Barabbas. Undeniably guilty, but set free while the innocent one dies in my place. But one great gracious observation emerges clear and incontrovertible from Romans 5. Jesus' atoning work on the cross makes it possible for us to love our enemies because God has been so loving to us. This is our God, he who ordains wrath for the wicked and still loves them enough to offer up his only begotten son to reconcile the wicked back to himself. By his blood, verse 9, we have been justified. By his blood, verse 10, we are being made alive to Christ. And when we get to heaven, if one should meet us there and ask us, why should I let you in? You must answer, you shouldn't let me in. I do not deserve to be here, but I'm here at the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ who made a way for me even while I was an enemy, even while I was a sinner, even while I relished in what it meant to be apart from him, even when I knelt on my knees and swore fealty to a kingdom of darkness, he had love enough within him to make a way for me to be redeemed. There are a number of great hymns 
throughout Christendom which have talked about this extraordinary and the surprising nature of the reality that is given to us in Jesus Christ. My favorite is from Spafford, H.G. Spafford, right? When peace like a river attendeth my way, you know this, I'm sure. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. But it's the third verse so often overlooked and I think so often sung without reflection. My sin. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Because our sin is nailed to the cross, I can love my enemies. Because we bear it no more, we can love our enemies. Because our sinless Savior bore the full wrath of God Almighty for our rebellion, we can love our enemies. How can people like you and me learn to love our enemies? How can we learn to live in obedience to what is one of the most difficult commands in the entirety of Scripture? Because we were once enemies of the great high throne, and now we are the sons and daughters of God. Father, Remind us daily of the mercy extended to us, chiefly through your Son, Jesus, who while we were undeserving, offered himself, who endured not out of consternation, but out of glory, what was due to each of us. Let us be grateful and more so let us be transformed by the reality and the work of your love given to us and working through us. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen.